I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the Thoughts on Money podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I am here today with my good friend and colleague, none other than Sean Latimer. Hello. If during this podcast you hear something that sounds like I'm drinking tea, it's because I'm drinking tea. <laughs> and uh, this is the first day that hopefully I'll get my voice back. So if I sound uh, a little bit more raspy than normal, uh, you know why. Yeah, he's not trying to uh, you know, sound special or whisper to you. <laughs> he's just getting off a little cold. You were just trying to think of the adjective. He's not trying to I'm, say... I, I didn't know uh, if I was allowed to say that. Yeah. So, I had to <laughs> so uh, today we're going to talk about an article I wrote... Uh, and I wish I would have done this earlier because there's always these different ideas, the thoughts that I have that I'm like, man, I couldn't make that into a whole article, but I would love to just chat about that a little bit, like uh, kind of my curiosities. We we titled the article Hodgepodge and Potpourri. Uh, are those terms familiar to you, Mr. Sean Latimer? Hodgepodge is not the other one. Not the other one. <laughs> well, if uh, you like Jeopardy, which I, I grew up, uh, my parents, it was kind of a tradition. We'd watch Jeopardy at night and... I would sit and I would answer the sports questions uh, and then just watch how smart my mom and dad are as they kind of rattle off all these different answers. But those are categories, just like in Jeopardy, where if you want to put a few different random questions together in one header, one category, that's what you call it. So uh, today we're going to talk about two random curiosities that Mr. Trevor Cummings has. And then next week we will uh, do part two and talk about to other curiosities. So I alluded to some of these in our last podcast. Uh, here's the first one. Longevity. You ever think about that? Yeah. And isn't it funny when you run financial plans for people and, and then you say, oh, we ran this till you're 100. And they're like, oh, no, I'm not going to, you know, I won't make it till I'm 85. Or, and, but they don't really have any underlying medical issues or, or they aren't sick. So you, you kind of sit there scratching your head like, don't bank on that because if you do live longer... You're going to be uh, in big trouble. Yeah, and this is anecdotal, but you and I are a couple 30-somethings, and I look around with my group of friends, and a lot of them have grandparents that are still with us. So a lot of them have grandparents that are in their 90s. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like even though you look at life expectancies, um, you don't see that big kind of arch. But when you break down the statistics and you understand that based on gender, based on uh particular hereditary or genetics, um, based on your wealth, like all these things could drive a a different life expectancy. I started to think, man, most financial planning software defaults to 90. I don't think that's prudent. Yeah. And you hit it on the head earlier when you said in the article that most of the people we're serving have enough money to last them the rest of their life, or or they, they at least have enough money to take care of themselves. And so if that means like proper nutrition and exercise and vitamins and supplements, it does make you wonder like, well, you know, there's probably no core. Maybe there is a correlation that people who have more money that can take better care of themselves will live longer. Yeah, I said in here that there was a few articles I looked at uh, that were from reputable sources that drew this correlation between longevity and wealth. Um, to say if you're in kind of this income class, there's a higher likelihood that you live to X age. So I like the point that you brought up. I don't think for a lot of the clients that we serve, it will be about outliving their nest egg. But I think there are still other pieces of their financial plan that make it relevant. So we have clients uh, that have enough money to last multiple lifetimes. Right. 
and estate planning becomes a huge thing there, right? Because if if there was a, a surplus above this particular threshold, uh, they'd be sharing nearly half of it with Uncle Sam, mm-hmm. and they can use up some of those uh, lifetime gift exclusions now uh, rather than later. Now, why would I mention that? Because when you start talking about money compounding over another 10, 15, or 20 years, it's significant. You'd rather that money compound for the, on the beneficiary's end than instead of on the parent's end, because especially if you're worried about state taxes. Of course, yeah. If you can pull it out of your state and it's uh, compounding elsewhere and not putting you above that threshold, where again, it's outside of your state, it's huge. So we didn't come on this podcast to talk about different estate planning, but it definitely made me think when I think about all those statistics about Warren Buffett and that like 98% of his wealth was uh, created after the age 60. And I start to think, oh, yeah, I've seen the graph. It's a hockey stick, right? That's how compounding works. Uh, it starts to accelerate the longer you go and rates of return on bigger numbers uh, starts to become a lot more meaningful. Yeah, and it is still prudent to talk about it because although most of our clients probably won't run into that issue. There still are some that are closer to that maybe uncomfortable point. And if they did live another 10 or 15 years and they were spending more than they're expecting, uh, that could get them in trouble. And could there be a spike in their spending towards the back half of their life? Yeah, absolutely. There's some sort of medical issue or... Long-term care, of course. And uh, this is a safe place. So I will admit, I have never ran a financial plan longer than age 100. No. I haven't either. But now after writing this and thinking about it, I should. It's a click of a button to run it to 110 or 120. And what does it hurt, right? All it does is stress does a stress test on the portfolio and says, uh, if it was extended a little further, what impacts would it have? And it made me think, oh, that's kind of interesting. If we built a culture where most people think they're going to retire, I don't know, 62, right? And let's say uh, they went to college and they started in the workforce at 22, so they spent 40 years working, and now we're talking about there's a good likelihood that they're going to spend 40 years not working. And that's wild to think about when you factor in, well, what if rates of return from this point forward are a little bit muted because of interest rates and valuations, and you're going to try to extend money you saved for 40 years over an additional 40 years, and you're going to live the same lifestyle, right? You're not going to have a more modest retirement lifestyle it made me think, wow, 10, 15, 20 years from now, financial planners are probably going to say, hey, you should be encouraging your kids to start saving because now you can see how this works. The only way to solve that equation, well, actually, there's a few ways, right? You can work longer, you could spend less, or you could save more. But if the answer is saving more, that's advice you need to give to your college-age kids because saving more on the back end isn't as helpful. Isn't it crazy to think uh, when you look at those scenarios where they're, you're trying to solve for X, like they want this type of nest egg to retire, and uh, you look at the time frame that if they would have changed their savings you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago, it's kind of like <laughs> disheartening to see how much more they'd have to save when they're trying to fix something only a few years out of retirement. Yeah, it goes back to that chart we're talking about, right? That hockey stick, that compounding creates the biggest impacts uh, the longer you let it grow. And I think it's relative even to college planning. I'll I'll tell people, I'm like, hey, if you absolutely know that you want to cover 100% college for your kids, you should super fund it because the biggest benefit of a 529, unless you're in a a state that gives you a deduction, the biggest benefit is that the growth 
would not be taxable when used for educational expenses. So you're trying to create what? The biggest gap between the basis and the value. The basis, what you put into it, the value of what the actual value is. Uh, to create the bigger gap between basis and value, you need time, right? Uh, I've had people come to me and they said, hey, my son or daughter is 16. I've heard about 529 plans. I probably should open one, right? And I'm like, too late. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm usually like, no, there's not like a huge benefit because you'd be betting that in the next two or three years that uh, if you put it in some sort of stock market portfolio that it would be appreciating. I I don't think that risk reward makes a lot of sense. So then you could plug it in there to get, you know, 2% or so on government treasuries and you could measure what the tax benefit would be, but it wouldn't be significant. No. So... This all spawned from uh, me listening to interviews. One was with a a professor at Harvard that kind of studies longevity. And I put the quote at the end, but he was throwing out some wild numbers. And he was saying that he sees no reason why people can't live longer than 120 years old. And the interviewer was saying things like, hey, how long – because he's – kind of testing on himself like i was gonna ask how old is he (laughs) yeah he how old is he i think he's in like his 50s or 60s but i think his dad he was mentioning was in like his 80s and he was talking about on on the podcast that uh he does these blood tests to kind of say uh what is your what did he call it i don't want to call it biological age i I don't know uh based on dna what age would you guess this person is anatomical or something like that yeah i don't i don't remember the word but he was like, you know, based on my blood test, I'm a 25-year-old. Uh, and oh, wow. Yeah, so – and his thing was about uh, – you know, th- there were some particular supplements he took. There was a diet. There was this, this exercise and kind of this routine of all these different things. But, yeah, he was saying um, he thinks from his perspective that uh, it's be very normal for uh, more people to live into their hundreds uh, because of the progress of medicine. And hearing it once, you're like, oh, Maybe that person's an oddball. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I was looking for it, but I'll tell you, like, from different articles I was reading and in different interviews, I heard it like two or three times. And I was like, man, longevity is a risk that we just rarely talk about. That's interesting. And that's kind of a perfect example of how we're saying that correlation between wealth and longevity. Because if you're getting blood work done all the time and special supplements, and I'm sure a strict diet that you can't just, like, go to McDonald's and get, you know, uh, that, that's not cheap. It's like the LeBron James example. Doesn't he invest like a million dollars in his health and training and nutrition and every year or something like that? Yeah, somebody was saying uh, him and um, uh, Tom Brady, I think they were talking about. I think this same, uh, I have to go back and listen to the interview. They interviewed uh, Tom Brady's nutritionist uh, and kind of going through those same things and the impacts uh, all of this stuff has on your body. And uh, again, uh, my curiosities. But I think where the rubber meets the road, if you're listening to this, is this not a bad idea? And if you're my client, I'm happy to do this, but it's not a bad idea to turn that dial and run the financial plan to 110, 120, just to see what it does. Because it, what's interesting, I would say as a financial planner, what you should always be trying to do is break the financial plan, mm-hmm. right? So what if rates of return were a little bit less than we planned? Or what if long-term care came into the play? Or uh, what if markets were ugly for an extended period of time? Or what if you lived a lot longer? So you pull those levers and push those dials to kind of break the plan. And then it gives somebody perspective and context uh, to the sensitivity of their own financial plan. All right, here's a question for you. So now if you run a plan for someone to 110 or 120, and let's say they weren't really going to face estate tax issues if they live to 100, but then let's say they're just taking the income from the portfolio and the principal compounds and grows to a number that they would, 
do you start making adjustments to the plan based off that 110, 120 number? Or is it just to give additional perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. There was uh, Joe Klein, he runs our financial planning department, and he does this exercise with our clients called Transcendent Wealth. Uh, And it's this idea of based on your current spending habits, how much of your nest egg do you need to make sure that uh, you don't outlive it, right? For some clients, that might be 30% of their nest egg. So this whole exercise is like, hey, this other 70%, there's where you should probably focus on some planning. And whether those are charitable endeavors or placing it in an irrevocable trust for the next generation or whatever that might be, those are exercises he goes through. Now, with your question, I would be hesitant to do a lot of planning for a 60-year-old based on uh, 50 years from now using what the current exclusion is. So David Bonson talked about that, I think, in his annual letter this year. Uh, A lot of uh, state attorneys and folks were concerned about law changes that never happened, Mm -hmm. but they still executed things for their clients uh, to try to front run those things, realizing capital gains in an early year or moving things to an irrevocable trust. And the way he articulated it, he's just like, that's not being a fiduciary, Right. right? We can't plan for what might be we have to plan for what is. Now, yes, we do scenario planning. We do stress testing. Um, but we can't do this what-if analysis and then you know, set up a financial plan or strategies or a state plan based on all possible things that may or could happen. And some of those things do have a cost today to do. If you're realizing taxes or if you're moving things out of your state, a lot of them you can't, you can't undo. You, know, you can't say, oops, we're wrong. Let's change it back. Yeah, I think it's a great point. Some some folks come to us with pretty heavy unrealized gains and they say, hey, should I realize those gains now as we transition to the strategy you guys are employing uh, or should I realize them over multiple years? I can't give the perfect answer because there's something I don't know how to measure. It's opportunity cost. And you're like this where our dividend strategy, uh, we won't talk about the particulars, but it does look a lot different than the market. I'm sure a lot of those clients wish we would have been more aggressive about realizing those taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So that they could have switched to the strategy earlier. But in different years, uh, maybe yeah. those those two horses were finishing at the same time. And then they're like, man, I would have been better off to get a lower effective rate and stretch it. So this idea of unmeasurable opportunity cost makes it really difficult. Yeah, it's like that. There's a little bit of luck involved too. Because if I tell you to sell it, it's probably going to go up a lot. And if I tell you to keep it, it's probably going to go down. So I'd rather you know split the baby and Play yeah. safe. <laughs> That's why the answer is uh, definitely to dollar cost average out or, um, or like you said, split the baby. Uh, but a- again, the reason you do that, I forgot who it was, maybe the founder of Vanguard, John Bogle, used to say, like, I have half my money in stocks and half my money in bonds. So if uh, stocks are doing good uh, and bonds aren't, I'm, I'm happy. You know, at least I got some uh, uh, skin in the game. And then uh, the opposite, if, if stocks are getting yeah. trounced, he's happy I have some bonds. Now, Mr. John Bogle, rest in peace, he would not be happy yeah, this year. I would year. just say not for Q1 2022. <laughs> yes, uh, stocks and bonds are both having a tough time. But uh, we'll leave that there. So, yeah, longevity is a risk. And um, I'll say this uh, to kind of close out this section. As uh, there is improvements in the medical field and opportunities for people to live longer, uh, and there's a cost to that, and maybe people with wealth can access that, they're going to, right? Um, Everybody, I I would think, um, everybody has a desire to find the fountain of youth um, and to extend a lifetime and to spend more time with grandkids and things like that. So again, uh, however long goes, was, uh, let's see here, 
15 years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know, 15 maybe, uh, that we didn't even have an iPhone. And now we feel like we can't live without it. Yeah. So uh, life can change quickly. Uh, so again, not a bad idea to run a financial plan a little bit longer, um, even just to satiate curiosities. Makes sense. Now we're going to go a totally different subject because this is, this is hodgepodge. I like it. Uh, so here's my other curiosity. And maybe for our investors, this section would be um, a good opportunity for them to be thoughtful of how they speak to their kids uh, about investing or, or things of that nature. We touched on this last week, but millennials are, um, from a lot of studies I've read, uh, seem the most susceptible to things like uh, anxiety and depression. So again, I want to be careful on how I talk about it, but it, it just seems like there's an extra sensitivity there. I also know that finances can be a, a huge uh, place of stress, mm-hmm. regardless of your age. Uh, it, it can stress folks out. I remember when uh, you know I first moved out of my house when I was 18 and uh, just trying to figure out how I was going to pay for the next meal or have enough gas money to, to drive to some particular place. So money can stress you out. So what concerns me is what happens when you take a, a generation that is susceptible to these sensitivities of, of depression um, and uh, money has the, the the ability to kind of poke that or push that button. Um, and now you're going through just an aggressive bear market for a very particular part of the market. We sometimes have called it shiny objects. But if you look at cryptocurrencies or high valuation uh, tech stocks, uh, some of those things uh, don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Some of those things are down 70%. And I'm talking about not penny stocks. Well-known uh, companies. Well-known, yeah. Um, so, and who has, so for our clients, maybe they had some exposure there of curiosity or hobby, or they want to kind of trade those things and it's fun and it's an account that we don't see. Uh, but for younger folks, it, it probably is a majority of their wealth. They, they might not be super wealthy at this point, but what if like 60 or 70% of their money is in those type of things? They've just been walloped and wiped out. Uh, what impacts is that going to have on them emotionally? And yeah, I've, I've had this conversation with some of our peers who have made significant money for their balance sheet in, in some of these stocks. And, uh, and I, I remember vividly saying, well, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to diversify, concentration risk, all the things we talk about every day. And they go, why would I sell my winners? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And it, it just it like hurts my heart to think about Wow, that's that's a pretty big difference now on your balance sheet. Like what what that could have done for your family, and I'm sure you're right. You, you, David talks about it a lot. You you have that feeling of regret, and uh, and you even mentioned the article. Some people don't participate in the market after a moment like that. Yeah, we talked about it last week a little bit, but it, there's this idea that there's kind of I want to say there's two ways to get wisdom, but maybe there's not. I, I want to think that you can get wisdom from reading, talking to, you know, your elders and, and kind of gleaning wisdom. Um, but probably the greatest place you get it is from experience. Yeah. And this is an experience that is going to send people, there's a fork in the road. It's either going to have them swear off investing altogether, uh, or it's hopefully going to be a lesson learned. I, I talked about in the article and I'm not, uh, I'm not joking about this. I'm being serious. Like I can't tell you how many 40 somethings or 50 somethings I've talked to that just, you know, maybe I'm on the golf course and they ask what I do and well, I'm never on the golf course. So. <laughs> Sean's laughing because Sean loves to golf and uh, uh, wherever I am, maybe I'm talking to somebody and they, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a financial advisor and, and they say, oh yeah, stock market's rigged. 
Like I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And, and if I go backwards, okay, if you're 40 or 50 something and, and I go back, okay, let's go back, I don't know, 22 years to when you were first investing. Oh yeah, that makes sense. You probably made a, a ton of surprise money with your you know early career earnings in 97, 98, 99. And then 2000, 2001, 2002, just absolutely punched you in the face. And you looked at something that was worth X, that was now Y. And then you said, nope, I'm going to cash out and I'm never doing that again. Or they held on and they said, oh, that was weird. But now they're going to do their peak earning years and then it happens again. Yeah. Um, And it definitely makes people feel like the stock market's out to get them or Mm -hmm. that it's a rigged system or... Um, it's kind of easy to adopt some of those philosophies to kind of combat with your regret. Yeah. I uh, I thought about a really good example I heard when I was reading your article, and it talked about when the all these motor companies were making cars. I didn't know this, but apparently there was like hundreds of companies that were trying to come out with like the newest automobile, and only the three major ones survived that are still around today. And I thought that was so interesting because then it also talked about in 99, there's a handful of internet companies that are here today and had tremendous success, but there's tons of them that we've probably never heard of that are gone. And then it talked about uh, how, you know, this is all speculation, but cryptocurrencies, could a cryptocurrency be around for the next 30, 40 years and be wildly successful? Yeah, but there's, I think, hundreds, if not more, of different types of cryptocurrencies right now, and most of them we'll never hear about again. So it just talked about just because you were right, you can still be really wrong and be very careful because if those things go away, there's no do-overs. Yeah, and the hardest question to ask yourself, not the hardest, but one difficult question to ask yourself in life, am I experiencing the exception or am I experiencing the rule? Yeah. Uh, We know from experience that there's some clients that are with us that have owned a, a stock for 40 or 50 years and we're like, wow, like look at the rocket ship that that thing went from X to Y. And we just think, man, if we got in a time machine, we would love to participate in that. But as it went from X to Y on that timeline, how many other companies went to the graveyard? Yeah. Uh, So again, that person that we can speak to, we, we probably think three or four different clients that kind of have that story. They are the exception. They're not the rule. And I will tell people when I get into conversations about cryptocurrency a lot, that, hey, if we got in a time machine right now and we went back to 1999 and we started talking to people, they would underestimate the internet. And when I say that, people are like, wait, what do you mean? It's the internet stocks, whatever. I, I get what you're saying. The stocks, the valuations were through the roof. They had no idea that with the push of a button, we were going to be ordering a Chipotle burrito that would show up at our door 20 minutes later. Yeah, They had no idea. They had no idea that you would stream sports from your phone, um, at, you know, as you're going from uh, the train ride from here to there. They had no idea, so they underestimated how powerful and life changing the internet was going to be. But what did they do? They overestimated the price or valuation of some of these internet companies. Mm-hmm. So could that same truth live today? That uh, some of these blockchain technologies or ledger systems can they have a huge impact on our world? But can some of the things associated with that be overvalued? Absolutely. I, I'm not giving an, an opinion. I'm not giving advice. I, I'm just saying when you take a past moment in history, 
that most of the folks investing in crypto did not experience, and you overlay that to today, uh, are there similarities? Absolutely. Yeah. So I ended that section with talking about, uh, you know, uh, and I mentioned on the last podcast, but a young man that took his life because he was investing things that he didn't understand. And he was doing it, uh, not literally, but I'll call it this way figuratively, on steroids. He was using derivatives, creating greater exposures than he could afford, was confused by how some of the things were working, and then saw a screenshot where he, he thought he lost, I think it was a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, and this was a 20-year-old man uh, that was, uh, or young man, that was like, I, I, I can't dig out of this hole. Uh, and he ended his life. So that might be on the end of extreme. Uh, and I'm not trying to tug on your heartstrings. Uh, I'm trying to say that these investing experiences, they have ripple effects uh, and they have collateral damage uh, and they impact people in, in a deep and meaningful way. So if you're, um, uh, if you have kids that are, that are young adults or folks that you mentor or, or grandkids, it's good to have these conversations and to walk them through news headlines from 1999 and show how it compares to today um, and, and talk to them about, hey, maybe history doesn't repeat itself, but it seems like it sure does rhyme. Well said. That's all you got. That's all I got. Sean's looking at his watch. It means he has an appointment coming up. So <laughs> we'll close out the podcast there. Uh, as always, uh, any and all questions are welcome. You can email Tom at thebonsagroup.com. Easy to remember, T-O-M at thebonsagroup.com. Address it to Sean or Trevor or whoever you'd like at the Bonsa Group. We are happy to answer your questions. Um, any comments are welcome on uh, podcast suggestions. We'll be back next week, and I'll give a, a, a little bit of a, a plug. We're going to be talking about two subjects, uh, and I probably should remember those subjects. But uh, Tough as buff. Tough as buff. <laughs> I like We're, that. Yeah, tough as buff. We're going to talk about Warren Buffett and uh, some of his results. And uh, maybe you can learn something from him. And uh, buff is tough. So uh, can you uh, kind of glean some of that wisdom? The other subject we're going to talk about is not so fast. Tina. Uh, and we're going to be talking about how there is this mantra adage in the finance world about there is no alternative and people are pressing further into the stock market. But as Sean and I know, and we have experience with, there are alternatives. So we will explore those and we will continue this discussion of hodgepodge and potpourri and uh, we invite you back. So sure enough, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on Money. Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.